Hello, I'm Catherine Lang-Anderson, a partner at Allen & Overy in our trading commodity finance team. Welcome to our podcast on digitalization of trade and the Electronic Trade Documents Act 2023. We're very lucky to have fantastic guests joining our discussion today. We're honored to have Professor Sarah Green here. Professor Green is Law Commissioner for Commercial and Common Law at the Law Commission of England and Wales. Sarah has been instrumental in the legal developments we'll be talking about today. We're also lucky to be joined by Roger van Lameren, who is Managing Director and Head of Trade and Working Capital Products at Lloyds Bank, and Alex Waits, who is Sales Manager at Anigio. Anigio is a tech company offering digital solutions and is a current Fuse cohort member. Welcome to part one of our two-part series on the Electronic Trade Documents Act 2023. Digitalization of trade has been a major hot topic in the world of trade finance for a number of years. Moving away from slow and archaic paper-based processes has been a priority, but one fundamental hurdle to this has been certain legal blockers. The Electronic Trade Documents Act set to fix this from an English law perspective and hit the statute books about six weeks ago. It's a huge step forward for digitalization of international trade, given that English law governs an estimated 80% of international trade transactions, it will be a huge catalyst in the efforts of the industry. So Rogier and Alex, maybe I'll turn to you first. What was the business case for the Electronic Trade Documents Act? Thank you, Catherine. Well, it's great to be here. Looking forward to the discussion today. Um, Perhaps I'll start, but jump in, Alex, as well. I guess from my perspective, before we even go into the business case, Unless you sort of are in the inside of the trade world, it's difficult to imagine that we still have all these bits of paper floating about the system every day. And uh, different estimates exist, but we think about 28 billion pieces of paper are floating around the world every single day in support of international trade transactions, which is crazy if you think about it. So before you even get into the economic business case, just getting all this paper out of the system, moving to um, 2023, really, the digital world feels like a a sensible thing to do. But you can imagine all this paper being in the system slows down the system as well, makes the system less efficient. And the Electronic Trade Documents Act that we saw being enacted in the UK this year, we believe will have great benefits to the economy and to UK businesses and international businesses as well. And just to bring that to life a bit, the ICC here in the UK have done some analysis and and they believe that the law change can generate £25 billion in economic growth for the UK alone, which is huge. They also believe that the law change will be a real enabler for supporting SME trade growth. So particularly the smaller businesses who will find it trickier, more difficult to export, you know, stand to reap the benefits from these um, these changes. In addition to that, there's some real efficiency savings as well. The numbers are huge, 124 billion pounds. But really, you know, if you kind of equate that to a per transaction cost, the ICC say that, you know, trade costs could come down by as much as 80%, which, you know, particularly for smaller businesses, you are finding it difficult or haven't actually started trading internationally, you know, will be a real enabler to drive that international trade side of their uh, their business. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
I think when you look at the business case and, and the, the, the reasoning and rationale behind this, the benefits are huge, not just in cost or processing time, but in the fraud, the risk, the loss of paper going missing. When you've got so much paper flying around, it's obviously clear um, it goes missing. And I think when you look at just on Roger's point there around, we are starting to see new opportunities coming up with some of the people that we're working with and potentially transactions that would not have happened because of the paper restriction are now able to happen because they're done digitally and the speed and the transaction time is is massively reduced on that. And that's a really good point, isn't it? Because the majority of international trade, if you think about it from a UK perspective, we know about 11% of businesses in the UK export. The vast majority of those are large corporates. So we really are behind the curve versus Germany, the Netherlands, United States and others in terms of supporting smaller and medium-sized businesses to export. So to your point, Alex, hopefully these, these changes are a real enabler for SME trade growth um, as much as anything. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, from our perspective at a particularly during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, the number of exam questions we had about pieces of paper not being where they needed to be, people not being available to sign, it's kind of really put into, into focus just how needed this is. But maybe I'll just, for the audience, why can't we then just go to digital? What's the problem? The problem is something which we call the possession problem. So the types of documents that we use every day, day in, day out, you you spoke a bit about the scale of just how many of these are floating around. Bills of lading, warehouse receipts, some insurance documents, bills of exchange, promissory notes. They all hinge off being able to be capable of possessed and for the holder to be able to require the obligations that those documents set out by possessing those documents. And the problem is, or was, that English law, in common with many other legal systems, because actually these kind of laws are remarkably consistent around the world, did not recognise the idea of being able to possess something that was intangible. So that was, in a nutshell, the key legal problem that needed to be fixed. Sarah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that from your perspective, how you came to be involved, what the Law Commission's role was in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I probably came to be involved because this the problem that you've just referred to, the possession problem, which is real sort of lawyer's law until you practically encounter it and wonder why you can't use an electronic document in exactly the same way as you can a paper document. That was something that I was an an academic before I was at the Law Commission, and that was something that I had written about for uh, many years. So it was great to be able to come to the Law Commission and and try and do something about it um, in in practice. And so what we were asked to do at the Law Commission, as we are for all of our projects, is to make sure that the law remains modern, fair and accessible, um, essentially fit for purpose. And of course, what's happening in commerce and has been happening for a few years is that people want to use electronic documents. They have been using electronic documents, but only by means of legal workarounds. And what we really wanted to do is to make the legal position such that electronic trade documents or electronic documents could be used in exactly the same way as paper. And as you've already said, Catherine, the problem with that is that we all accept that paper can be possessed. But until quite recently, If you put something in digital form, it wasn't clear that that could replicate paper, that it would have the same factual effect in the world 
um, as a paper document. So if you think about what I suppose now are quite old-fashioned digital documents, take a Word document, that doesn't necessarily replicate paper most of the time because when I pass um, a copy of it to you, I keep a copy. I don't divest myself of it. It's not unique and singular in the way that we need these digital documents to be because these digital documents represent and embody legal rights. So you don't want to duplicate those every time you pass a document on. So what we wanted to do was make the law such that electronic documents have that same legal recognition. And of course, the technology is now there at the moment. It's largely distributed ledger technology. It won't always be. But the technology is there now to enable these documents to replicate paper so that when I pass my document on, I no longer have it. Um, And the person who receives that, the transferee, gets the full effect of that singular document. So that's what the ETD Act does. It essentially says where a digital document replicates its paper counterpart, the law will treat it as if it is paper. Fantastic. And I think, I mean, we've got a copy of it right here in front of us. And I think the brilliant thing is all of that has been achieved in less than two sides of A4. So I think it's a really targeted piece of law um, that really unlocks what has been such a big problem where the law hasn't kept up with commercial reality and the abilities that we have now. And one other point I was going to add to that is it really builds on hundreds if not thousands of years of established process procedure across the trade industry more widely. You know, we often at Lloyds Bank refer to the first trade document going back some 4,000 years to the Babylonian times, right? And we know that the Han Dynasty used trade documents, the Roman Empire did. There's lots of different examples throughout history around the use of a promissory note or a bill of exchange, et cetera, and so forth. So really what I think the Electronic Trade Document Act does quite nicely. It doesn't really look to mess with any of those really well-established principles. It just brings it into the digital era that we all find ourselves in already. Yeah, that was a real concern of ours because, as you say, English commercial law, and we referred to it earlier, it covers a huge amount of international trade. And what we are all very concerned about when we reform the law is try to fix parts that aren't broken. And because commercial law in this area works so very well, we really didn't want to interfere with that. So I've described this act before now as laparoscopic legal surgery, because what we really wanted (laughs) to do was just go right into the, the pain point and change just that. And then we can key into all of that history and all of that precedent and the fact that courts know exactly what they're doing when they see possession. So that's what we just wanted. You know, we wanted these documents to be possessable and then the courts know exactly how to deal with them and the thing is i think if with the technology head on here what you're allowing people to do is make the changes without having to completely change everything they do you know and and what it will also do you know i speak to lots of different people every day but one of the things that you look at and you mentioned it there roger is the bill of exchange a lot of people in institutes they sort of pulled back the bills of exchange slightly because of the operational challenges where this now is actually allowing you to go back to that document and bring it slightly back into favour and more use as well. So it's got huge, huge benefits. Absolutely. So as you've pointed out, Sarah, and it's really interesting to hear the background to this, 
that the Electronic Trade Documents Act is not trying to reinvent the wheel. So there are some parts of it where we've been asked questions, for example, the meaning of electronic trade document. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Because what we what this act does not do is granularly set out every single type of document this is intended to cover. Yes, we were asked quite a few questions about that when we were putting the act together as well. So at the Law Commission, we um, put these things together on the, on the back of uh, consultation. So we speak to all interested parties when we're doing this. And so my answer to that is partly a response to those consultation responses themselves and also our own thinking. So there's quite a lot in the Act, brief though it is, that isn't particularly prescriptive. And that is deliberate. So what we didn't want to do is to set out, as you say, in granular detail, in very precise detail, exactly what an electronic trade document is, because we wanted this Act to be able to be used as broadly as possible wherever there was a document that needed it. And of course, at the moment, we might have been able to, in fact, we probably would have been able to do a fairly um, comprehensive list. But it's a bit of a mission, to say the least, um, getting a bill through Parliament. And once something is in statute, it is ossified for a number of years. I mean, really, this particular Act is in place to alter the effect of one that's 150 years old. And we didn't want to wait another 150 years before we could change anything about what an electronic trade document was. So what we decided to do was start with first principles. What are the sorts of documents that are going to require this legal change? And once a document ticks those boxes, it doesn't have to be part of a specific list. There's an indicative list there. But this was deliberately a sort of open-ended way of using the Electronic Trade Documents Act, so that it wasn't, it didn't ossify a small group of documents within its remit. Yeah. So less is more, I guess. (laughs) 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 And the other area we have, well, the industry's been talking a lot about, and I've got to mention it, wouldn't be, you know, this podcast would not be complete without it, (laughs) is uh, the concept of reliable system. So the Act says that the information which would constitute an electronic trade document, needs to use a reliable system. Sarah, maybe you could talk us through a bit about um, how that came about and a bit more colour on, on what that means. Okay, well, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I get asked about that a lot. And the answer is, is similar in the sense that, again, we didn't want to set something in stone. So when we talk about these documents in 2023, We are all, I think, envisaging a very similar sort of technology, a similar sort of platform, as I said, I've already mentioned, distributed ledger technology. But the point is that I think we also all know that in five to 10 years time, probably sooner than that, those technologies are going to look different. So we did not want to prescribe and set out in any great detail what a reliable system looked like and exactly what it required. Now, we have put, I mean, in Section 2 of the Act, there are some indicative characteristics of that system. But the point about this whole Act, we just have to keep coming back to this, is that all it's trying to do is say, where a document in electronic form replicates paper, then it should be treated in the same way. We've got that divestibility, as I've said, the exclusivity, the singularity, which we know can be done. And if a system can do that, then it's very probably a reliable system, unless there are very obvious reasons for it not to be. So this was not intended when it was put in the Act. It's a means to an end. And it was certainly not intended as a 
sort of extra stick to beat the industry with. We use paper, Alex has already mentioned, we've used paper for centuries, and that's not that reliable. If we started from today, nobody would suggest transferring these rights by means of paper. It's so fallible. You can rip it, burn it, lose it. (laughs) And so that's all we were really trying to say. You know, paper's a reliable system. It's just not quite as reliable as DLT. So that's the background to the thinking with reliable system. We deliberately didn't set out a checkbox system. Yeah. So then it very much becomes a factual question, I suppose. Yes. Rather than a legal one. But I think the more we can talk about that within this group and across industry more widely, just to get everyone up to the same understanding around that point, the better. Because we certainly at Lloyd's, you know, have had various discussions around hang about what form do we need to fill out or what thing do we need to comply with to be able to say it is a reliable system or not that we're using. To your point, actually, this is more around the holistic view that we take across most systems or all of the systems that we use already anyway. So the view that we took as well, we do a lot of due diligence, analysis, assessment, etc. for any system that we use to produce documentation, to engage with our clients, um, etc. And so we simply rely on the robustness of the, the checks and the due diligence processes that we already have in place and assuming that the systems that we use from a trade perspective meet those requirements, then from our perspective, we're very comfortable that the system is a reliable one indeed. And certainly the, the Inigo guys have uh, passed that test well. No, that's, uh, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Has that been a big focus for you, Alec? In, in, in developing your solutions, obviously you've had a bit of an eye on, on how legislation is going and, and what, what you'll need to do. Yeah, I mean, it's something we talk, we look at, we speak about every single day, you know, due diligence, governance. It's reliable system is something I talk about every day, to be honest. And I I think it's something that the industry needs to not use as a blocker to move. There's been many blockers when you look at it across, across digitalization. Legal side was one that's now been removed. So don't put something there again. And I think technology due diligence and safety and governance is, is just, it comes standard with what we do. You know, it's, it's something we, we have to continuously be better every day than we were the previous day. You know, everything gets smarter by the hour. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's massive focus for us. Yeah, which is completely, you know, coming back to, to Sarah's point, that's exactly why you haven't tried to over-engineer what the Act says about this. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much to our panellists for being here and sharing such interesting insights um, into this new law. Um, In part two, we will be focusing more on um, some practical aspects of, of complying with the new law and also looking at what's next for the industry. So please tune in for part two.